1: so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com historyextra History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com historyextra History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
0: Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. Where does the word chivalry come from? How should an honourable knight treat his vanquished foes? And do chivalric ideals underlie modern-day misogyny? In our latest Everything You Wanted to Know episode... The medievalist Lydia Zeldon-Rust answers listener questions on chivalry, the idealised code of knightly conduct that arose during the medieval era. She was in conversation with Rebecca Franks. Thank you very much for joining me on the podcast today, Lydia. We're here to talk about chivalry, which is a word I think that we're all familiar with today, but I'm curious to know where did it come from and what did it mean?
2: it's a very good question because chivalry is one of those terms that is tricky to define as I'm sure we will talk about but the term itself kind of etymologically speaking it comes originally from Latin but the way it reaches English is through French and in it there are little hints already as to what the term means so if we take the French term for chivalry which is chevalerie you can already see some of the kind of hints of what it is connected to so we have in that we have chevalier so the word for knight French word for knight, but also within the word chevalier, we also have cheval, which is horse, which kind of gives us a hint already that knights were originally very much associated with the horses they wrote. Chevalier kind of means horseman, as it were, they're kind of seen as a unit. So chivalry is a term is very much associated with these knights on horses, these military figures, and that is how it comes into our vocabulary. But of course, it's, it's meaning and the kind of senses that we associate with it sort of change over time.
0: We often think of the code of chivalry. What did that mean and who did that apply to? I mean, you've given us a hint there of these knights.
2: Yeah, so I did kind of give it away a little bit in the definition in that this is very much about knights. This is the world of knights, the aristocracy, the elite. I'm afraid if you're the local peasant, a lot of this doesn't apply to you. You are just collateral damage on the battlefield. (laughs) But the way chivalry kind of starts, the way we know the concept now, it's very much centred in this post-Carolingian world. So this is the world of Charlemagne, the great emperor who ruled over vast swathes of Europe. And as his kingdom sort of collapsed, there was a lot of infighting. There were kind of local barons kind of fighting with each other, local warring states. And whereas before if there was warfare and this kind of men coming together to fight for a cause, it was often a case of going abroad and fighting someone else. Whereas now you could be fighting your neighbour. And what we see is that there is a sense that these men are their equals and perhaps you don't treat them the same as kind of this this other enemy that you must defeat for the greater good, as it were. And so we start to see that sense of how one should behave on the battlefield and how one should treat one's equal. And, and again, this is very much noblemen, kind of how they treat each other. And it changes over time. So the crusades kind of give it a boost. It starts to get more religious connotations, the idea of chivalry, the idea of fighting for God. And becoming a martyr if you die abroad, kind of fighting for God's cause. And then we also see in kind of the earliest sources there from the 12th century, these are usually historians or religious writers who write about chivalry and the idea of knighthood. And then towards the end of the 12th century, we also see literary authors kind of picking up on the idea and giving it new meaning as well. So it starts to get more kind of associations as well of the ideas of how to treat ladies and how to behave quite courtly and how to kind of, I don't know, traipse around a forest. And so in a way that other knights might recognise you as a a fellow knight. I think what we associate it with nowadays mostly is this idea of honour. So this honour of among men. We see some authors from the period also writing about prowess. There's quite a a lot of medieval knights who kind of write their life story or they write a guide to chivalry, as it were, and they often write about the physical demands of the job, how difficult it is and how much discipline one must have. We associate it, I think, with courage. One must always be brave, of course, and bravery isn't necessarily the absence of fear, but it's kind of facing it head on. There's also mercy, the way you deal with defeated opponents, and also mercy towards bystanders, those who are not at all involved in the conflict, how you treat them. There's prudence, one must be wise. And we also see people writing about using moderation and kind of not too much splendour. Now, as I say that, actually, that changes over time. So you see that people writing in the 12th and 13th century about kind of moderation and using it for good and things like that. But we start to see towards the end of the medieval period, 14th, 15th century, that it is actually very much associated with lavish display. So chivalry kind of moves from the world of the battlefield to kind of public displays of valor and martial prowess so things like tournaments ceremonies of various orders things like the order of the garter etc which is very popular and actually it becomes more like a lavish display so all the things that early authors kind of warn people about what they shouldn't do they totally do in the late medieval period and it's all about what you wear and whether your helmet looks flashy enough and has like a dragon on it or something to indicate the kind of great knights of old that you are trying to imitate and trying to kind of put yourself in that longer tradition so it very much morphs over time and then it also has a bit of a renaissance in the Tudor period Henry VIII is a big fan of chivalry particularly of Arthurian stories as his father was as well Henry VII famously names his first child Arthur who sadly passes away. But also under Elizabeth I, this idea of the tournament and chivalry, etc., is very much still there. And she treats some of her courtiers as kind of special knights who are quite fabulous also in the way they dress and how they behave. And we start to see there as well that inheritance of how one behaves towards women and kind of the court but yeah it's a slippery term really chivalry I can't give you one definition it's not like if you bought a piece of armour in the medieval period it came with like a little pocket with a how to do chivalry booklet I'm afraid it doesn't really work that way so we've got various authors writing about it, and sometimes they contradict each other and themselves at times so there is not one kind of key manual for everyone It's also a term that changes over time. So I think our modern idea of chivalry is quite different from what it would have been in the medieval period too. It's more to do with how to behave gentlemanly and how to never ask a lady her age and hold the door open for women, that kind of idea. And that's very much a 19th century inheritance. That's kind of a reinterpretation in the 19th century of what chivalry means. So it's quite a, it's a nebulous term, hard to pin down, but there are some key aspects which is very much to do with how knights behave towards each other.
3: We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down.
1: Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
0: That leads us on really nicely to one of our readers' questions. So George Haig on Facebook wanted to know, were there common texts that outlined the accepted practices? And if so, under what authority were they adopted?
2: Oh, it's a really good question. So as I said, there there isn't like one manual. Having said that, there are some authors who are seen as the key authorities on the subject But again, they do often contradict each other, which kind of makes it interesting. But most of the sources that we have are from the early 12th century. The earliest sources are religious writers. And as you may imagine, it's often kind of condemning violence and kind of saying, you know, people are going around killing. Oh, no, we worry about their souls. Shouldn't they be using this for good? So someone like Bernard of Clairvaux who's quite an influential kind of religious writer. He writes about the Knights Templar in this case, and he's kind of writing about how they are better than your average kind of riffraff and your average soldier because they are true knights they are truly chivalrous and that is because they fight for God and so in their case it's not just this uncontrolled male violence but they are actually directing that for good so that when they die their soul is not at stake but they are martyrs and they will be rewarded in heaven there's obviously lots of problematic consequences to that idea we have some other religious writers around that period too and then we also our other sources are literary sources So that's from the 12th century onwards which given idealised view of chivalry, to be honest. I mean, you can often wonder what works in the story might not work in real life. And there's lots of examples of records of historical battles that show that they often go very differently. This idea of mercy wasn't always upheld, for instance. On paper, that's great, but we find that that often only holds for aristocrats. One of the reasons mercy becomes quite popular, for instance, during the Hundred Years' War is that you can ransom prisoners. So rather than killing them, you have to get rid of them. Someone might want to have revenge. It's very icky. What you can do is kind of ransom them and then you look great, quite chivalrous and also you make a bit of cash. So this very much holds for noblemen because your average soldier, I mean, nobody will be able to pay for a ransom for them. So it's fine, basically, if they die. That's just, you know, the unfortunate stakes of war. It is very much an exclusive elite club. But in literary texts, we do get this idea that one must be magnanimous towards everyone and towards one's enemy. So that shapes it as well. And then from the 13th century, our sources start to become knights themselves. So quite a few knights, once they get, they're a bit older and they're maybe at that age where they're reflecting on their life, sort of middle age, they start to write books about the idea of chivalry and sort of the how-to manuals for how to become a knight. One famous example is... Geoffroy de Charny. He's French, as you may be able to tell from that name. He writes the Book of Chivalry, basically. It's what it's called. He is a famous knight. He was killed during the Battle of Poitiers. So he's uh, involved in the Hundred Years' War. He actually, he dies quite valiantly, as you imagine, a knight would, kind of holding uh, the French war banner. But a few years before that happened, he wrote a kind of manual on chivalry. The context for that is, is that Edward I had kind of Just created the Order of the Garter. And as a response to that, the French king, Jean II, had created the Company of the Star. That was kind of his equivalent to it. If you haven't heard of it, there's a reason it wasn't very successful. But Geoffroy uh, was one of the first members of the Company of the Star. And in that context, he wrote a kind of manual on chivalry. And he kind of writes about how to become a knight. So the kind of challenges, the physical challenges, but also the religious aspects. And this is also very much an older man kind of reflecting on his life before that another writer from the period, Ramon Yui, he's Spanish. He is also a former knight, but he's someone who very much turned to religion later on in life. And so he also writes a book about chivalry. And that one's very famous. It's called The Book of the Order of Chivalry. And that book very much puts emphasis on the religious aspects as well. And we think that's much to do with the author himself, who had a bit of a kind of epiphany later on in his life and devoted his life towards God. But you also get knights writing about how they kind of really enjoy slaughtering people, where the religious context is nowhere to be seen. So there are lots of different sources from the knights themselves, but also historians writing things down. And we see throughout the medieval period, one of the interesting developments is that we no longer in chronicles and things like that. Older chronicles, you'll just get kind of factual recording of what happened. That changes and uh, chroniclers like Jean Froissart, another French author, start to kind of judge people for their actions. and kind of say who is being chivalrous in a particular battle, who did well, who was a good knight, who was a coward, things like that. So that also tells us a lot about the attitudes of the period. And it also tells us that chivalry was also perhaps a case of People policing each other and kind of deciding on what was good behaviour and what was not good behaviour and things like that. So it's a mix of sources. There isn't one source. But if you put it all together, there is a lot that they have in common. So it gives us a general view of what chivalry was like in the period.
0: A related question comes from Rosemary Kelty on on Twitter. So she is asking, why did the ideals of chivalry transfer from texts to the real world, i.e. nobles taking on these ideas in practice? I don't want to answer for you, but from what you've been saying, it sounds like actually maybe it's a two-way process, you know, those two things are happening in
2: parallel. Yes, very much so. So even though we think the origins of it would have been kind of the real-life situation, lived experience, it was very much an interplay between the two. So to some extent, we also can't see them as separate, certainly as the medieval period goes on. So the 14th and 15th century, the ideas of chivalry are very much shaped by literary texts. And even into the Tudor period, so if you get someone like Henry VIII, who is, you know, all for displays of wealth and chivalry, you've got the field of the cloth of gold, something like that, which was all about kind of showing off and kind of showing that he was the inheritor of this chivalrous tradition. A lot of what happens there is very much by the book, as in by the literary books from the period. So clearly a lot of these kings kind of grew up reading romances. We do know from their libraries as well that they owned books like that. So they would have been exposed to that. And again, this idea of Henry the seventh calling his first son Arthur is very much kind of in that vein because he was supposed to be the once and future king, right? So it's art imitating life and then life imitating art. And sometimes you can't quite tell where the line between the two is which is fascinating really for the period it's also why later texts like Don Quixote work so well because there you have a knight who actually has read too many of these books and it sort of says that it's rotted his brain and he's walking around like he is in a romance and imagines himself a, a great knight on a noble steed rather than on a donkey that parodies that idea that some people are, are fed too much on a diet of romance and chivalry. The question of why, though, is a really interesting one, because it's much easier to describe the how, of course. We can often pinpoint a particular noble person who was inspired by something and then started a new order or had a feast or a tournament where everybody adopted the names of famous knights, things like that. But the why is a more interesting question from that point of view. It probably has everything to do with power, of course, that you can, if you name your child Arthur, you are you are claiming a certain amount of power and uh, inheritance of the great English ideal, even though King Arthur was made up. Or certainly that idea of Arthur that we have in the late medieval period. So it's to do with power and display, kind of showing that you are powerful and you know the codes of the aristocracy and you're in the in-group, as it were. So we see lots of French nobleman for instance as well first it comes to mind for me is Jean de Berry who's someone who actually leads a couple of things during the Hundred Years' War a couple of battles and but I think as a person he was probably more a boy who loves books and who likes to hide away with books. So he, we see him commission lots of romances and books on chivalry and also books about his lineage, heraldry, things like that. So everything to do with chivalry and great knights. So he styles himself on this in order to appear like a great knight. But like I said, I think he was probably more of a bookish lad who wanted to kind of hide away and read books.
0: Following that literature, bookish thread right now. We have another question from Belle Buchanan on Instagram. And the question is, what's the origin of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight? Did people believe in a Green Knight?
2: Oh, I love that question. That's an excellent one. Also very good from the sense of knowing that this is one of the key texts, certainly for an English context, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. At the time, but also for us now, it's it's one that very much deals with the kind of ideal image of how a knight should behave. So it's Sir Garwin who undergoes several tests and it kind of tests all the various facets of the chivalric code. It also maybe shows us that there are some problems with it sometimes, that it maybe works wonderfully in theory. But in this story, Sagami finds himself in a bedroom at some point, besieged by a beautiful, sexy lady who kind of goes, I've read the stories about you. I know that you like ladies. What about me? I'm a pretty lady. How would you deal with me? And of course, romances dictate that you must be chivalrous towards women too and you must kind of accept their advances, accept the problem here that this woman is married and that is very much a no (laughs) because she is the Lord's wife. So it kind of shows us some competing codes there. Should he be chivalrous towards this beautiful woman or should he actually be loyal to the host? And so it also exposes, I think, some of the possible contradictions Predictory Morales in the Chivalric Code. It's a late 14th century romance, The going in the Green Knight. It's part of a sort of resurgence of romance as a popular genre, also Arthurian text. So it's very much set in an Arthurian world. But we don't actually know who wrote it, We call him usually the Gawain poet or the Pearl poet because he also wrote another text called Pearl. So there you go. We think one of the theories kind of going by the way he describes the court and things like that is quite vivid and seems to really know what's going on. There are some descriptions of the hunt in it as well. So this might indicate that we're dealing with someone of aristocratic stock of aristocratic background but then other scholars have kind of said well but you could also pick up that knowledge from just reading lots of books maybe you could read a hunting manual or you can read lots of romances and know about the court so it doesn't necessarily tell us anything so I'm afraid I can't give you the answer of who exactly wrote it and what the context is but it certainly shows a, a fascination with chivalry as a concept so what happens in it kind of the famous scene is Gawain has a shield and it has a pentangle on it with five points. And our author kind of takes us through what each of these points mean. And it's very much amounts to a code of chivalry of how to behave and how to be honorable, how to have courage and things like that. And one of the interesting details is, so he's got that shield on his arm, as it were. So on the outside, it has the pantangle, but on the inside, it has an image of the Virgin Mary. So it also kind of reminds us that this kind of religious ethos that's woven through chivalry as well. As to whether we people would have believed in a green knight, it's a very good question. I don't know of any record of anyone in the medieval period having read it and kind of written their response that would be fabulous if we had that for stories I would love that we get that very rarely on balance it's considered a very very kind of fantastical text and it's very self-consciously fictional so probably they would have seen it as fiction but that doesn't mean that it doesn't reflect certain practices of reality so what happens at the start is that we have King Arthur who's at a banquet and he basically says I won't eat until anything interesting happens so everybody else moans a bit because that etiquette demands they don't eat either so they're very very hungry but then finally this green knight enters the hall and he commits a bit of a faux pas because a bit more than that he enters on his horse which is not what you're supposed to do you're supposed to leave the horse outside and one of the reasons that might be is he's trying to signal that he is a knight so it it again comes back that at to that idea that the knight and the horse are kind of a unit as it were. He looks like them basically so the narrator kind of gives a long description of he's very very green and his horse is very green too but he gives a long description of the horse's trappings, armour that the knight is wearing to emphasise that this is a knight. So this is one of them. So we have the Arthurian knights here and the noble women, and they see someone like them entering. And that's probably why it works. So if the story had been something like Sir Garwain and the green fisherman or something, it wouldn't have worked. They wouldn't have taken the challenge at the start of going, if you chop my head off, I'll chop yours off, because why would you listen to him? But because it is a knight, that's why it works. So it probably does reflect some of that reality of kind of chivalry only gets taken seriously if we are talking about the aristocracy and if we are talking about real knights in that sense.
0: And another name I think people often associate with chivalry is is that of Chaucer. What does Chaucer tell us about this topic?
2: Oh that's a lovely question too. Yeah so Chaucer seems to be quite interested in it too and particularly in the genre of romance as well. He writes a very lengthy romance, it's called Troilus and Crusade set in ancient Troy where kind of classical tropes are turned into, they get a sort of medieval sauce poured over it and suddenly they're not like the great kind of heroes of old but they are knights and that's kind of what makes them very medieval and we get the code of chivalry. But one of the most interesting examples I think actually occurs in the Canterbury Tales so I think some of us will know that there is The Knight's Tale there was also a film called The Knight's Tale which very much kind of takes that as its starting point and we get introduced to the knight at the start of Chaucer's Canterbury Tales and the way he's introduced is quite interesting because it's alongside his son who is a squire So he's introduced first because we get the sense that there's a hierarchy of all the pilgrims in the Canterbury Tales and so the knight is introduced first as he has the highest status and then the squire comes next and they are kind of juxtaposed and it gives us a little portrait of kind of perfect idea of knighthood in that time. By juxtaposing those two. So we have the older knight who's kind of, yeah, he's older, he's seen the great battles. We get a list of the battles he's been at, and they are all kind of the great battles of old, and they're all very much crusading related. So he arrives in his mail coat and he's kind of still covered in blood. He's like fresh from the battle, he came to this pilgrimage. And then we have suppose with that, we have his son, the squire, who's very much the kind of new style of chivalry. He's the one who's read too many romances, basically. He's read too many books. So his kind of chivalry all lies in how he dresses. He has quite fancy outfits, and the narrator pauses to describe all the embroidery on what he's wearing, his lovely shoes, his hoses, things like that. Also how his hair looks. We're also told that he can sing and he sings to the ladies and he can play and instrument, you know, details like that, which kind of show this kind of more literary depiction of chivalry. So whereas the, the knight represents this old warfare, battlefield kind of chivalry, this is the new kind of prancing around in pretty outfits and singing to ladies. That's basically what we get. We're going to move on
0: now to a question that we've been hinting at, which comes from Jane Fleming on Twitter. And that is, what was the role of women?
2: Beautiful question. Yeah. And a very, very good one in a sense that it's very easy to talk over them and pass them by because we are very much in the world of men. But there are some cases where we do see that women had something to say in terms of chivalry. Now, partly that's in stories... So I will say that the general motif of these stories is that the woman is there to be looked at in romances. She's there to be beautiful, wear lovely clothes. Guinevere is a typical example of that. Lots of descriptions of her beautiful hair and her face and her lips and her clothes. She doesn't do much in the stories except get abducted and then get rescued. They're quite passive characters, Are there to inspire knightly deeds. So Geoffroy de Charny, this knight that I mentioned earlier on, who actually writes a manual about chivalry, he also touches upon the topic of women and he also basically says that they're there to inspire great deeds of arms they're there to inspire the men sometimes that's taken quite literally in story so there is Chrétien de Troyes story of Lancelot this is a romance it's also known as the Knight of the Cart this is a case where Guinevere's been abducted again and she needs to be saved and Lancelot saves her so what happens is Lancelot is fighting Guinevere's abductor on this field. So behind his enemy is a tower. And on top of that, there's Guinevere, who's been imprisoned. And she kind of looks down at him as he's fighting. And when he's within sight of her, when he sees her, he fights really strongly. So he drives the enemy back and he's he's really ennobled by her gaze. And as soon as he's out of reach and he can't see her anymore, he gets driven back. So it's like a constant back and forth until he can see her again and he can defeat his enemy. So it takes it really literally, this idea of women inspiring the men. Having said that, there's a couple of romances where women are the heroines. They are, however, interesting because they are the exception, it must be said, but they're there. And I think it's worth pointing out these kinds of dissenting voices because they are interesting. Now, in terms of the real life aspect of chivalry, and again, it's difficult to split the two sometimes, We do see that it's mostly men writing about chivalry and about knighthood. But there is another interesting exception. Again, interesting because she's an exception, but she's very, very powerful. And this is Christine de Pizan. So she writes quite a few books on chivalry. One that is a manual of chivalry. So it's called The Book of the Deeds of Arms and Chivalry. But she writes a few other texts about this topic too. And this is very much a how-to book as well. And she was, in fact, probably commissioned by a French aristocracy. We know that she was paid from the royal budget, as it were, to write this book. So she was commissioned to write this book for men. And it is all about how to behave in battle, how to treat your enemies, things like that. And very much focuses on the practical aspects of warfare and of governance, of how to guide yourself and how to govern others, things like that. So this is a woman writing for men, and they took it very seriously. We know some examples of real-life knights who owned her books, which makes it really interesting. So Sir John Talbot is one example. He owned a manuscript of Christine's book on chivalry. The later knight Antoine de la Lange also owned a copy. So these are real knights kind of looking stuff up in uh, Christine's books, possibly, I don't know. We imagine they may have done and kind of modeling themselves on that. Also women read them too. So we know that quite a few women owned Christine de Pizan's books. We know that Elizabeth I owned a copy of this same book on chivalry. So that's a really interesting one too. I'm
0: going to prepare two questions now from readers actually on a kind of similar theme. The first is, what was the dark side of the code of chivalry? And that's from James on Instagram. And I think that would kind of lead quite nicely to this question we have from Adam Hillhouse, which is, was chivalry a precursor of our present day misogyny?
2: The question of misogyny is interesting because I think that also comes down to what the definition of chivalry is. So I would never deny that much of the medieval period is infused by an ethos that we would now kind of call misogyny. (laughs) People often ask you as a medievalist if you would want to live in the medieval period. My answer is definitely no. I love studying it from now. I'm a Woman with opinions and would not do well, I think, in the period. So I would never deny that. But I think chivalry as it existed, it was very much a code among men. Women didn't always come into it. That's not until kind of the literary inheritance and the things start to kind of shift as the literary filter happens. But I think our modern idea of chivalry and... I guess it comes back to the question of, if you hold a door open for a lady, are you being quite decent and polite and is that good etiquette? Or are you in fact suggesting that she couldn't open the door herself? Which is, of course, a very interesting minefield that might, one might not want to step into nowadays. But I can see how the question would have led to that. I think in that case... What's worth kind of considering is that our idea of chivalry is very much filtered through a 19th century interpretation and reinterpretation of what chivalry meant. So what we start to see in the 19th century is that French, British and American authors are kind of rediscovering the idea of chivalry and they are redefining it as they are rediscovering it. So someone like Sir Walter Scott is quite famous, I think, writing about chivalry and Ivanhoe and kind of the other Waverley novels. He writes about chivalry as quite a lovely ideal. I wish that was what it was and how it worked in practice, because he very much writes about it as a violence being a last resort, as honour and courage and things like that. But also this idea that the strong must protect the weak. And I think, yeah, if you look at records of medieval battles... That was very much not the case. The Black Prince, for instance, Edward the Black Prince, very much known for being the flower of chivalry because he treated French noblemen and particularly the French king so well when they were held ransom and when they were held captive. But he also you know brings a band of men together and ravages the countryside burns everything and you know horrible horrible tactics towards civilians and you know if you're just a common soldier this kind of ethos of protecting a kind of being honorable does not extend to you the idea of being merciful on the battlefield yeah you need to pay ransom and if you can't afford that then I'm afraid yeah you're dead but I love it when Walter Scott kind of talks about this I think that's where this inheritance with this kind of you know the whiff of misogyny as it were kind of comes from because it, he really writes about it in other authors in the period as protecting the weak but in the 19th century over time the weak started to mean women i think collective groan is what we insert here and then that's the idea of chivalry that we still live with today which doesn't necessarily reflect the medieval period i did have another example of a dark side this is what it makes me think of straight away when you when you say something like Dark Side, is the conquest of the Americas. So this is a bit lesser known, but when the first Spanish conquistadors went to the New World, went across the Atlantic, and particularly in Mexico, some of them wrote down accounts of what they did, what they found there. And we see in a lot of these cases that these men kind of cast themselves as the heroes in romances so they wrote about themselves as knights as chivalrous figures a kind of bringing their enlightened christianity and noble chivalric behavior to the savages on the other side of the atlantic and obviously that leads to lots of atrocities and lots of problems and of not quite seeing the natives there as fellow human beings and yeah the bloodshed continues in that sense
0: And obviously we've discussed how chivalry was sort of an ever-changing concept really through time, but that original kind of medieval chivalry, how long was that in practice for and when did it decline?
2: Oh, so that's quite difficult to pin down as well. So scholars don't agree on this and it kind of depends on what you think, again, what the definition of chivalry is and when it stops. There's one argument to be said that maybe it declines after the Hundred Years' War when maybe these kind of large scale battles didn't happen anymore. Certainly not for a British context, although you get the Wars of the Roses, so infighting. So some have said maybe the Wars of the Roses is the latest point and that that's when it ends. But then of course you get this rediscovery of chivalry in the Tudor period, kind of continuous in the Elizabethan period but that's often a kind of a quibble about terminology. So if you think it's more to do with the warfare and actual practice of actual knights, it probably ends a bit earlier than if you think it is also this ethos that kind of continues in books and literature and tournaments and displays, then it continues for quite a bit longer, well into the 16th century. And then yes, we have this later rediscovery. So yeah, depending on where you put your emphasis, the answer is the 14th, the 15th, the 16th century, or it never died at all.
0: (laughs) Thank you. And let's fit in one last reader question. This is from Paula Berenstein. She asks, is
2: there a history of chivalry in places outside of Europe? Oh, that's an interesting question too. A tricky one. One of the interesting things about chivalry as a concept is that the term itself is used in the medieval period by people writing about it. We're not often in that position as medievalists, because often the kinds of things that we write about are post-medieval terms that we came up with that we call a phenomenon that happened in the medieval period. So... This is quite unusual that they actually use the term itself, whether in French or Latin or the English equivalent, say. Uh, There's German equivalents. We have German knights writing about things too. So in Western Europe, we do see it a lot. We also see it coming up in Central Europe as the threat of the Ottoman Empire rises after the fall of Constantinople in 1453. But to say that it's outside of Europe is a tricky question. If you boil chivalry down to a warrior code, then absolutely. This idea of how warriors should behave and how should they treat each other, that's a phenomenon you find in lots of cultures and across history, but the term chivalry does seem to be quite a European-specific term but it's been argued for instance that Japanese samurai say have a, a similar kind of code which is obviously not the same but it boils down to a similar kind of morals and set of ethics around how to treat each other and courage and honour and things like that but of course what is considered honourable might be quite different but like the example of these conquistadors going across the Atlantic and taking their chivalric ethos with them it does spread and it does have an impact so yeah it's an interesting one. That was Lydia zeldin Lydia has appeared on our podcast before
0: to discuss the strange world of medieval romances in more depth. Just search for knights, dragons and beasts in your podcast feeds to bring that up. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden.